Hello and welcome to episode 165 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now I really hope you're tuning in to today's episode off the back of episode 164 because that was the first part in a two-part episode of my interview with the amazing Art Alexis from the awesome band Everclear. Right now, hopefully you've listened to the first part and you're here for the second part. So without delay, I'm going to get straight to it. Here's me and Art for the second time talking all things Everclear. So Art, I really appreciate you coming back on. Obviously, we spoke last week and we cut it quite short and it felt like we were just getting into the juicy stuff. So thank you so much for coming back on Mark and Me. To be honest, when we talked last time, we were talking all about your influences, all the music you loved, all those early gigs. You were really young going to see the best bands in the world, but we never actually talked about Everclear. We got to the bit where we were just talking about you wanting to be the front man and the guitarist. And I think that's where we should start today. I think the fans now are ready for this. So what I want to know is those kind of first moments when you were meeting those band members and really starting to think this is something that could actually happen. All right. So I'm living in San Francisco in 1991. And uh, or, yeah, 1991. And uh, my girlfriend is from Portland, Oregon, and she gets pregnant. We're trying to get pregnant. Didn't have any money, but we were in love. Dumb kids, but we wanted to have a baby. And she actually got pregnant. And I, my band was, I had a record label that uh, I had sold a bunch of CDs, but hadn't been paid for it by a big indie company. And they went into bankruptcy and I didn't get paid. So I didn't have any money. So we decided to move to Portland in December. My pregnant girlfriend, everything. And I went up there and I told myself I'm going to do one more band. That's it. If not, if this didn't work, I was, I was, I was 31. I was uh, 29 years old, almost 30. If this wasn't going to happen now, I was going to move to LA, work for a record label somewhere down the line. But right now, um, and then I, I put ads out in the paper and I met three guys that, uh, or two guys, bass player and a drummer that, uh, responded to my ad out of all the people and uh, went and worked, like got a rehearsal hall, did an audition. They were horrible. <laughs> that, was that bad. Friggin' horrible. And then oh, I got a response from this other guy who had been a fan of my previous band who lived in Seattle. And this other guy was a drummer and I sent them my tape, just me playing, you know, a guitar, acoustic guitar. And I went up there, I got a bus ticket for like 20 bucks, went up there from Portland, it's about three hour drive. And uh, we we got a rehearsal hall and it was amazing. It was awesome. It was just strictly amazing. And then they came down one time and I went up another time and we just didn't have the money to do this, to do that long distance thing. And I couldn't move up there and they didn't want to move down to Portland. So I went back to the other guys and you know started everclear and i i had two names i was either going to call it everclear or sparkle nice i decided everclear and um we it was it was rough going with the guys but we we stuck with it and um that was uh craig montoya this kid who was from spokane washington who was really young eight years younger than me and my and the drummer um, Scott, our original drummer, Scott, um, who, uh, just, we just didn't jive on anything really, but, but it kind of, it just slowly through the summer just kind of made it itself. You know, we got a few gigs here and there, had a hard time getting gigs because we we're all from out of town and Portland was very clicky. So at the end of the year, I met this guy who had a studio that would give me, if I, I traded him true story traded him two like effects like a delay and a, a reverb um for 40 hours of recording time it was 10 bucks an hour and wow. we and recorded every song we knew and that became our first record world of noise it was a demo tape and because i wanted to see whether i needed to stick it out with these guys because i wasn't sure i wanted to hear it on tape right yeah and so we did that 
and I sent the I sent the cassettes out to people at different places in this place called uh, South by Southwest in Austin, Texas, um, accepted us and gave us a showcase. And we went and did that tour. And I, before we left, I sent packets out to every paper, every club, everyone in town. And we were gone for about a week and a half and driving back, and this is before cell phones, right? This is 90, yeah. 92. I mean, I think people with money had cell phones, but I didn't. And um, I called home to check in on the road, like a, like in a phone booth. And my girlfriend's like, man, you need to get home now. Uh, I came home today and there was 47 messages on our machine. And Fuck. <laughs> oh, why? It was just everybody wants to book your band. Everybody's, and she goes, there's five, you, the, the local papers in town from, from small to big to the daily newspaper all have written about your band and how you're the best new Portland band just from your tape. And we went home and I had all these offers to play shows, offers for tours and just all this stuff. And we just went about in night. So that would be 93. In 93, we just played everywhere in town and became a bigger band in town. And we signed a deal with a local um, label to put out that record as a, you know, that demo tape, yeah. the real record. And um, we did, and we, we toured and, and locally, you know, up and down the coast. And then we, uh, we went to New York and we got accepted to a thing in New York showcase. And um, then the label started coming after us, you know? And uh, so it was, it was just slow progression. And it's, it's funny because people who don't like the band will go, oh man, you guys had like overnight success. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I was 32 when I got signed and I've been playing in bands since I was 16. So yeah. I don't think that's considered overnight success. Um, with that album, obviously it was recorded in a basement for, like you said, you sold pedals and it was done at such bucks. a low, yeah, low budget. That's insane. You know, I wouldn't get you now a day in a studio, would it? In a, in a pop producer, like a few hours. Well, with a hot producer? No, even then it wouldn't, you know, no. it was actually more expensive then because every, it, it was now everybody's, I can record Doing it themselves I yeah. on, on my Mac. Yeah. These people record on their iPhones, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's a different world now. The moment you put on that album, you know, World of Noise, to hear your genius hands and sick and tired and the fact you got the song then Sparkle, so you still got to use the title Sparkle. The rawness of that and the, 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 the probably the true, I think just the general, you're wearing your heart and your sleeve, you're putting everything into it. Like you said, that's your last bite of the apple it reflects on the record and that doesn't happen too often because everything's polished and put through a studio and produced and engineered and all that. This is pure adrenaline on a CD. It's you've got something on there that's captured like more of a live performance and like, fuck, this is the band you now want to go and hear those songs on stage in a small room, sweaty as soon as possible. That's and well, thank you for saying that. And that's exactly what you got. You got a three piece band who are just like, and I, you know, uh, I, I try to have as much energy now, but I'm not, I'm not 29 anymore. I'm 59. And back then, if we weren't fully drenched in sweat by the end of the first song, we were phoning it in, you know, we weren't, it, it was just like punk rock, um, just kinetic, whatever you, you know, people called it alternative, but to me, it's just, it was rock and roll, you know, and rock and roll is a physical thing. It's a mental thing. It's a, spiritual thing it's a sexual thing it's all those things combined and uh that's that's what we tried to put into our music and uh you know and, and craig became a really good bass player i stuck with him and he became a great early member of the band and scott was good but um when we when we we had issues he had issues and we had issues me and craig with him and we when we signed before we signed to capitol we uh, in '94 we went to a different drummer. We went to Greg Eckler. Yeah. yeah, and I mean to do that, to do that, it's such a short space of time. I know it's two years, but you release this album. You're playing every show you can. You've gone from that last bite of the apple to it now paying off. You get a big label in, and they're like, right, 
are you ready now to do another album? So you're like, fuck, we need to do Sparkle and Fade. You know, like instantly you're under well, pressure. I was, because I was ready to do that. I was you, ready. you sat there ready, songs written. You're like, fucking bring it on. Well, we had songs written, but I had so many ideas. And when we got signed to Capitol, they gave us a, a, an advance check. And one of the things I did was, you know, I, I, I had told my, I was on tour and I told my uh, girlfriend, who later became my second wife, to, here's money, man. Go, go find us a cool house in a better neighborhood. We were living in a really scary shithole of a, of a, of a rental, of a duplex. Um, and she went and got this really beautiful house, nice yard for the kid, everything great. But I just, get me a basement. I need a basement. And yeah. I just, you know, we, we did the old school thing with the eggshell you know, the, the egg crates and, and the carpet, the whole nine yards, bought some mics, bought a uh, PA. And every every night I was out on the porch writing songs, right? And then in during the day, we'd, we'd be down in the basement working. And every day, me, Craig, and Greg. And uh, we did that for about a month. And then the guy, our A&R guy, Perry Watts Russell, uh, came up from um, LA and uh, listened to our stuff. And we went through our songs and he's like, I like that song. I think that that should be on the record. He goes, I think all these songs should be on the record. Well, she got, I go, I got three more. And I played, I played Santa Monica for him. And he's like, wait a minute, play that song. <laughs> and I played it again. And he's like, that sounds like the most radio friendly thing on the record. So that and that song, Heroin Girl. I'm yeah. like, okay, all right, that's cool. And then I played him another song. And uh, let's see, what was that? What did I play him? One, two, oh, Heart Spark Dollar Sign. And nice. like, that sounds like a, a radio song too. And um, and then I played him a song. I, it was just uh, uh, Nahalem. I'd just written a song called Nahalem that was a punk rock song. And he goes, it sounds like a great record, but that song santa monica you don't say santa monica anywhere in the song do you art and i'm like nope he goes well you should change the title i go fuck you no way <laughs> and that's when i go did you do you remember that when we negotiated this contract i told you that i had to have it was funny because there was like 27 labels that came after us and i i said i want this much money and they're like Okay, that's not too bad. I want this many firm albums. I want tour support. I want this. I want that. I want marketing money preserved to go here and this and this. You know, they're like, okay, this guy knows his shit. That's cool. Um, and then I'm like, oh yeah, by the way, I want total creative control over everything. And I produce our own albums. And poof. <laughs> bye bye. 27 band. Like, yeah. like 20 were gone. Just yeah. gone. The other seven are like, okay, what else you got? And I'm like, okay, now we can talk. These are the right guys. Yeah. That's fine. And uh, Capital was the one that I, I, it was Perry. Perry Watts Russell. He's a, he's a, he's a Brit. And uh, his brother's Ivo Watts Russell, who's, who uh, runs 4AD Records, started 4AD Records. And uh, Perry had been a manager and he just was a real guy. He was no bullshit. He wasn't like most of the people in, the music business in Hollywood where you come away from him feeling kind of dirty. Yeah. He wasn't like that. And uh, I, and we would get into it, man. On that record, um, he was like, he, about Santa Monica, he was like, it's not long enough. I go, it is long enough. He goes, no, yeah. you need to, it needs more. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck you. And he goes, you, you can put out this record, but it's going to fail. You want to fail? You want to be an asshole and fail? You know, we started like yelling at each other. And I'm like, all right, you know what? I'll do it for you, Perry. But I'm going to write a song just for you called You Make Me Feel Like a Whore. Nice. And I swear to God that I just came up on the Wow. Just a, you know, just, just a, just a, you know, piss them off. And, uh, and then when I was on the road, I started writing the song called You Make Me Feel Like a Whore. And it came out pretty good. It was our fourth single. Yeah. But, um, I, I did it, and uh, back then there was no Pro Tools, so we had to actually go into a studio and cut the tape from a chorus, put it on another tape machine, right? Like crossover, 
and then record over that tape it actually tape it to the two inch tape and then record over it and that's it's crazy what, that's what we did to make that the last part of where it goes and then does the last chorus with me singing way high and the chimey guitar and everything and when we finished that and mixed that he's like that's perfect that is a hit song i'll stake everything on it it was right that's fucking awesome, man. And the fact is, like, you look at those sort of six years. You had World of Noise, which is, you know, your debut. It's leaving your mark on the industry. And then it's your kind of foundation. Then you build upon it with Sparkle and Fade, which is just, for me, absolutely epic. There's not one bad song on there. It's not, you never skip a track on those albums. But then you're, like, really getting on the radio. MTV are showing your videos. You're starting to really get a name for yourself. And people are really, you know, you're starting to see, I'm sure, bigger crowds at your shows, more people wearing your T-shirts. It must be like, okay, this is really starting to snowball. So, so then this, you go, so this you know. is what it feels like. <laughs> okay. This yeah. That's what it like. Okay. And people liking you. Yeah. And are you, are you phoning are you phoning the girlfriend and saying, let's get a bigger house? Like, you know, that house you've just moved to, let's get a bigger one. Yeah, we bought the house in the West Hills. Yeah, that's good. And then you obviously go right. This is 1997. The pressure must be on you because you're thinking, I need to top this last album because you never want to drop, do you? And you go and do so much for the Afterglow, which is just, let's be honest. I'm not saying it because you're on the interview now. Textbook, you know, Jimmy Eat World, Clarity, Everclear, so much for the Afterglow, Green Day, Dookie. They are reasons that people pick up the guitar there are reasons that people want to be in a band this album is legendary it didn't start that way you know i mean fall of, of two of 96 after touring and the success of, of sparkle and fade um i i was we were chopping at the bit to go in and record another record right and uh i uh i mean there's bands that wait for like two three years to put a new record out um I grew up listening to like Zeppelin and, and different bands like that that would record every year. Tour, record, write, tour, record. You know, it was it was a cycle. And we got into that kind of mindset. And I went in to record a record that I was tentatively calling Pure White Evil. And uh, we recorded like 15 songs, mixed about 12 of them. And uh, I, I remember it was January, I was in New York, uh, at Electric Ladyland Studios, and uh, we ISDN'd the record, which cost like a hundred bucks, you know, to ISDN it to uh, my uh, to Perry, and Perry listens to it twice, and he's like, you know, it's it's a decent follow up record. It's it's not bad, but uh, and there's some songs on there that I think could be huge hit songs, that Father of Mine song, I, you know, that New Life song, but it's not done yet. And it's okay, but it's not gonna do for you, for your career what you want it to do. And, and because what I wanted was just, I, I didn't want like superstardom, I've never wanted that, I've never wanted to be rich, I don't. Most people that are really big stars and, and who are, really rich uh whether it's music or not are miserable yeah i'm miserable and i don't want that i wanted to be able to support myself and have a family by playing music that's all i that's to this day that's what i want that's yeah to me that's truly living the dream no bullshit and uh he's like it, it's just not it's not there yet and i got off the phone i uh I spent another two weeks in New York by myself, just live, living in a hotel room, walking around, watched this movie uh, called Jerry Maguire that came out, just came out, watched it like six or seven times. And- um, That's I, a Cameron Crowe masterpiece, that film. I fucking love it. I think it's probably his best movie. It's up there. Yeah. Almost Famous is pretty good. Almost Famous is the best film, but after that, it's Jerry Maguire. I, I agree. And they're both way fucking better than Vanilla Sky. I hate that movie. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, um, I, uh, you know, I just, I got myself some notebooks. And one notebook was like writing new songs and, and ideas for songs. And the other was just taking some of the songs that I already recorded and adding more production to it, adding some bells here, adding a background. Of course, I had a new chorus here, adding this and that. And 
when I was done, I knew that I had the ideas to make this record the best record it could be. And I called the guys and got on the phone with them and said, okay, we're gonna go into a studio. I've got this place booked. I had already called administration, book studios and stuff like that. We're gonna go in and do this and mix, remix this and this and this, and we're gonna get a new mixer. And uh, we got Andy Wallace. I got Perry to go call up Andy Wallace and he got him to do it. And uh, we went in the studio and recorded different, different stuff. Um, we were working with Pro Tools for the first time. My friend Lars Fox uh, was getting into that and I bought him a new system. And so even though everything was recorded to tape, we, we manipulated some of it with, with Pro Tools, not everything, like three or four songs. But uh, um, it was, we just, I, you know, to me, there was no rules. Like one of the songs was a song that we just did this long, heavy jam in the studio and then me and Lars went through it and took this part and took this part and took this part, put it together, put some loops and some beats and some stuff to it. Cause I was really, really into the uh, chemical brothers at the time. Oh, nice. And kind of had that kind of that hypnotic kind of feel to it. And then I went back and recorded another couple of guitar tracks over it and screamed into a distorted mic and, and it became the song called El Distorto de Melodica which isn't even proper Spanish. It was just me fucking with shit, you know? And uh, it's just, the album just kind of became itself. You know, I pulled a couple of songs out here, boom, it made sense. And um, we mixed it in uh, June and it came out in October and it wasn't a huge smash right away, but we had a number one song, everything to everyone. And uh, it just, it wasn't those one of those records that came out and sold a hundred thousand records right away. I think it sold thirty-five or forty thousand. Yeah. The thing that was different about it is it kept selling thirty-five, forty thousand a week, every week, yeah. every week for like a year. And um and I think it's really close to triple platinum if it's not triple platinum by now. Um and, and surely your label guy came back to listen at that point and was like, Yeah, okay, this is the masterpiece because you it could release no. any any song on that album out of 13 tracks look white men in black suits sunflowers one it wonder everything to everyone the opening track any single one of those could be a single that's on the radio you wrote an album of 13 singles which is so hard to do so hard to do but not was, many bands do it there's no I, filler but i've never tried to write singles i think bands no. try to write singles are are kneecapping themselves they're i mean you're trying to be creative about something that you're trying to turn into product. That doesn't mean it doesn't become product. It does, but that's their job to do when you give it to them. When I say, this is the best record I can make here. Can you, can you sell this? And they were like, Oh yeah, I can sell this. <laughs> yes. Thank you. I remember the first time the president of capital was listening in his office with me really loud to wonderful, the song wonderful. And he's just, he just looks at me and he's just like, <laughs> I'm like, is he just saying thank you and smiling or saying fuck you and smiling? Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with the former. But um, yeah, you know, dude, man, I'm just blessed to, to have had the career that I've had. Um, we had 10 years of, of success and, um, you know, going like this. And, um, not very many people do. Not were that. you were you truthfully aware of the success at that time, or were you too involved because it is you in that bubble? You're living it every day. You're seeing the record sales. You're touring. You've got it all going on. From the outside, I was going to gigs and seeing you supporting bands at like Wolverhampton, Civic Hall, in these smaller venues like Feeder and stuff. I remember these gigs I went to when I was growing up at uni and college. And then it was suddenly, oh, Everclear are headlining. I bought Kerrang! magazine. I was like, oh, Everclear have got their own show. And I was like, okay, cool. And then I saw, oh, Everclear are playing Download. Oh, Everclear are playing Reading and Leeds and they're playing the mains. You know, I, I just kept seeing the evolution going. Do you kind of even have time to digest and see what's going on when you're in it for those 10 years? That's a really, really great question because the truth is you think you do. You think you are. You think you're not making the mistakes that other people make. You think you're not being arrogant and um you know to me the the the, the horrible word was rock star right 
you call me a rock star, I'd punch you in your fucking face. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, I, I come from an old school punk rock thing. But yeah, look back at it, you know, married a 20, 21-year-old when I was, you know, 40. Um, you know, um, yeah, I was doing rock star shit. I was, I was, I was sleeping with women indiscriminately. I was like arrogant. I didn't think so at the time. I thought I was just confident. But looking back, I was arrogant. I wasn't. I wasn't connected to my my sobriety and my program. I was sober and clean. Yeah. I wasn't using drugs or drinking, but I was using sex and power and and control as as drugs, and um, not happy. Man, the most successful I've been, Mark, in my life. And I know this sounds like a Hallmark card kind of um, bullshit statement, but the the times I've been the least happy in my life is when I've been most successful. And because I didn't trust anybody, I didn't have trust, I didn't have uh, loyalty. Uh, just people were just, people just act like they're your best friend. People want to work for you. They want a piece of this. And growing up as a poor kid in a housing project, I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know money. I wasn't even middle-class, man. To me, then and now, middle class achieving middle class was that was that was up here yeah and i've got that now and i'm so grateful for and full of gratitude for what i got i'm even grateful for my my disease for my ms because it's taught me um it's taught me what i really need in life to have is not the things that most people think it is I mean, you need money. You, you want to have money that you can live comfortably. Of course, everybody wants that. And uh, you you want success and you want you want people to like you. I like it when people clap at my concerts. Of course I do. That's, you know, that's, that's, it feels like redemption to me, you know, for all the other shit that I've gone through in my life. But at the end of the day, well, all I really need to do is know that I've done my best and that my family's good and that I'm connected to my friends and my family, and I have love in my life all around me. And I know it, I, I know it sounds cliche to say, say it, but that's exactly how I feel. It's not cliche, and I know I've had big people on this podcast and guys from Corn and stuff like that, and they've said the same stuff. So it's not just you. And I'm grateful that I'm 39, so I'm 20 years younger than you. And... It's only the last year that I've found out more about myself, maybe because of lockdown, maybe because of changes in my life, maybe through the events that have happened, but I don't take anything for granted. I've shortened my list of friends from hundreds of mates to 10 solid good friends. I'm not being a dickhead and going out there wanting attention from everyone. I found that I should find the attention from the people that really mean it and not just after something. Exactly. I'm grateful I've done that because it's only recently I've done it and for too long I was wanting all the claps and the likes and the attention and the crazy nights but really take it all away it's still the same lonely life it is and unless you, that's that's exactly what I found out and look having people like what you do when you're doing exactly what you want to do that feels great but we live in a world now with TikTok and and uh, all this, the different social medias and this and that, where people are famous for doing nothing but being famous, you know, yeah. or how they look or how they dress or their influencers or all that shit. I'm like, be famous for doing something, doing something well, doing something yeah. that's different, that's unique to you, that's better than the other people or like if you're an athlete. Right. I get that. I get why athletes are famous because they do something better than pretty much anybody else. Right. I get that. And I get people who have beautiful voices and who write great songs and who do, you know, make great films and great art, all that. But that's accomplishment. And then when you're famous for just being handsome or having big boobs or being or being um, charming, I don't, I understand it, but I don't, I don't want to understand it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't, 
I don't, I don't play on that team. And at 59 and having that and being younger and looking back at my videos going, who's that good looking young man? <laughs> yeah, I get, I get, I get like white girls used to like him. This I don't get, but that I get. Um, yeah. But at the time I didn't, at the time I thought I was really not very handsome at all. I was, I, my arrogance was driven by my success, you know, and um, it's, you're going through a sea change at 39. That's really good. I love my 30s, but by the end of my 30s, I really started thinking about deeper stuff. And, yeah. Um, and uh, it took me to the end of my 40s to really get it. I I wish I had my health the way I had it in my 30s with what I know now. In my, yeah. In my 50s, late 50s. You know, I wish I had my health. Um, I'm what was it then, Art? What was what was it that? Because I have a lot of listeners that will. So we had Jerry Kramer on recently from Flight the Navigator, the young child in that, and he went to prison. He had armed robbery. He had drugs. He was at the worst point of his life, but he's turned it all around. He's come out, and now he's absolutely clean. He's got a daughter, and he's loving life. It was the birth of his daughter that changed everything. It stopped him being this wreckhead and this absolute crazy guy that just had no limits. What was it, can you remember, that kind of switched for you or changed? What, what was it that well, triggered it? Having my first child really did change me from being, uh, you know, at the time, I'm just, I remember the day she was born. I went home to get clothes for my, uh, you know, and more supplies and stuff. And I was sitting on the couch and I felt this weight on me. Literally, I physically felt this weight. And I thought, oh my God, I'm having like some sort of psychotic episode. And I'm just, but I'm just thinking, I just, you know, it's all about me and yeah. what I can do or what I'm supposed to do or this and that. I need, And then I realized that it's all about my child, that I am a vessel for her. That doesn't mean I don't need to satiate my dreams and follow through on it, but I need to follow through. I need to do everything I want to do and not just talk about it. And the pressure just came off me. It's about her. And um, she's not going to be happy unless I'm happy. And I'm not going to be happy unless I do what I'm supposed to do, which was music. And six months, you know, a year, a year after that, uh, let's see, that was 92. So two years after that, we got signed. But um, a year after that, I got signed to an indie label. And we're moving like this, you know, it was just moving. Yeah. And... I think that moment in time was was um, the catalyst for it, for sure. And now that you still get to have, you know, a good life, a good balance, you get to still go out and see people wanting to hear these songs that are nearly 20 years old, some over 20 years old, which is frightening. Even at my age, I'm blown away that it's 20 years ago. I was probably waiting Dude. to try and meet you outside a small venue in the UK. <laughs> That's crazy just a little boy with red hair <laughs> that was it that was it in the t-shirt ready to just want you to sign the back of the t-shirt fuck 20 years ago but um Dude, but, but think about it. a lot of the kids that are coming we did a show in southern oregon and there was 1700 kids there and there was a lot of older people who were old school fans but there was a lot of kids that weren't even born when sparkle and fade came out they weren't even born no. right and I'm just like, how the fuck does that happen? And they're singing, dude, Mark, they're singing all the words, not just the hits. They're singing like to Summerland. They're singing to, um, you know, um, Man Who Broke His Own Heart, which is off a record that came out in 2015. They're, 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 they're singing words to songs that like have not been on the radio or MTV. And they don't even know what MTV is because MTV wasn't the same thing. No, actually, used to play music videos. Remember that? <laughs> vaguely, vaguely. I don't know what the fuck they do now. God knows. Probably the Kardashians and some bollocks. I don't know. I wouldn't. I don't even know. Yeah, that's pretty much it. They play. I think they play like ten videos a week. You know, from super, super, duper pop. You know, Beyonce type stuff. But um, but it's pretty awesome, isn't it? That you're still getting to go out there, play these songs. You know, you haven't broke up and hated everything about it and you know just gone into this sort of 
place that nobody wants to go to. I've seen so many bands that just resent everything they've done because they, there's a breakup or there's an argument or there's a, a divorce or a lawsuit or something. But you, you're there playing those songs to all ages and they're all loving it. Their dads are loving it. They're taking their kids that are loving it. That's pretty awesome. It's awesome. It's awesome because that wasn't, I don't know if that was the case for you, but I didn't go to rock shows with my parents. Never. I had to lie to go to rock. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be ringing my dad at three in the morning after yeah. seeing someone like the Chemical Brothers or Orbital saying, Dad, I really need picking up. <laughs> I've missed the last train home. Well, and you know, and that's what a dad does. He picks you up and is like, we're not going to talk about this right now. We'll talk about it later. Yeah. When I'm not so pissed off and <laughs> you've had some sleep and breakfast. And, we'll talk about it and you know, and that's the way it should be. Because yeah, kids are kids. As long as your kid is safe, you can pretty much deal with about anything. But, but no, it's like I, um, as a as an artist, and I didn't used to like the term artist for musicians. I thought it was pretentious. But we are artists. We create something from nothing. If you're writing songs and creating music, um, and is as, as original as you can make it, um. I think you're an artist. And you're both starting with a blank canvas, aren't you? Same thing. It, it's it's literally the same thing. And uh, uh, there's different levels of skill. There's different levels of uh, what what you hope to attain, what you do attain. You know, but to me, the most important thing is that you're coming from a place of like, I'm going to write a song about parental abandonment. I'm looking at my daughter sleeping and wondering how a man can walk away from that so i'm going to write i've got these feelings that i just can't keep inside of me and i've got this music in my head and i'm going to go try and put them together and i did and created father of mine and that's that's it's not sexy but it, that's how it works for me it comes from a very gut primal level of just like this is what i'm thinking about this is what i'm feeling Instead of sitting down with some guy in a room and going, okay, I got, I got a, I got a riff and B, I got an idea about a guy and his dog and blah 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 blah, and that's how a lot of so country songwriters and even R&B and even rock now sit down and write with professional writers. I've tried to do that. I can't do it. I'm not good at it. It's not my thing. I got to write by it's myself. Even at 59 and you've had this success and you've had these albums, you did start late to the game when it got to the big labels and the big, you know, production and all the, the stuff. Is there anything major that's still on your to-do list? You know, you've been involved in studying again. You've gone yeah. through a hell of a lot of different things, but is there anything left that you still haven't achieved that you just can't kind of carry on until you've done it? I mean, there's a few places I'd like to play. Uh, that I don't know if venues, but to be honest with you, if it, it doesn't happen, I'm okay. I played Madison Square Garden. Um, you know, um, we, we've done a lot of amazing things. I've, um, I've had multi-platinum records. My mom lived long enough to see me be successful, her baby boy. And, you know, after growing up in a housing project, that was a big deal for her. And uh, attaining that, I feel like I've attained pretty much everything I want to attain. I'd like to be a grandfather, you know? Yeah. And I look forward to that. Um, I look forward to doing my therapy work and and still playing music and maybe making some more music. I don't know. We'll see. It's just as long as, um, you know, I make enough money to live comfortably, that's all I care about, really. And and I hope that uh, I, I've started some new medication for my MS and Hopefully, I mean, it's going to be another month before it's supposed to really kick in. But right now, it's just, it, there's a lot of side effects and stuff like that. But I'm getting through it, and I'm hoping that it's going to make me, you know, be able to be more mobile, more uh, sharp, um, more um, more like myself, you know? So and, and with that, obviously, I don't want to make it a big focus for this podcast, but with the MS and the diagnosis and being told and your life having to change, what was the biggest change and what did you learn from it so much over the last, you know, couple of years? Well, like I told you before, the, mo the thing I've learned most from MS is gratitude. Yeah. Feeling uh, 
loved by my family and feeling loved from fans and from people that aren't even fans have reached out because of the MS and, you know, just there's a huge fellowship and community there. Um, so that's what I've learned from it. I've learned that I, um, I'm a lot stronger than maybe people thought I was, or even I thought I was when it comes to doing stuff like that and um, being physical. And a lot of times when you're young, even at your age, you take things for granted. You take your body yeah. for granted. You do. You take your health for granted when you don't have issues with it. Why wouldn't you? You know, I had health care for years, never used it, never went to the doctor. I had a guy I called if I needed, you know, if I had a sore throat or something like that, but for the most part, never got sick. And now after, you know, starting in my late forties, it started and uh, now in my late fifties, you know, I've had back spinal fusions. I've had this and that. They're talking about replacing a hip. <laughs> you know, it's not sexy, man. But it, it is what it is. I'm going to do what I have to do to um, to be able to do what I want to do, right? I mean, that's that's just life. You do what you have to do to do what you want to do. And when you break it down to something as simple as that, it's 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 not hard. You know what you have to do, and so I'm. I'm just. I feel. I feel blessed. I'm not an overly religious person, but I do feel like I believe in karma, and I feel like my karma is very strong right now, and uh, I have a lot of blessings coming my way because I've worked for it. And uh, even with my health issues, um, I don't focus on the negative. I focus on the positive, and um, when you do that, I think it makes the negative things. It, it, it's like it makes the monster, you know, underneath the bed seem a lot smaller and the elephant in the room disappear. So that's amazing advice. And I normally ask everyone that comes on the podcast towards the end advice to give to the listeners if they want to become a musician or if they want to become a songwriter. But I think with you, you're more than that. And you've got experiences in life from abuse and torture and the hardest times, but you've come out. I think it's better and fairer for the listeners out there to have advice from you on how to tackle the dark places. And you've done that through today's interview, but is there anything else you could add to anyone that is struggling or anyone that is having anxiety attacks or being in a place that's dark to give them any sort of hope? Well, for the music business, I would say, or anything that you want to do and you, um, you know, you have adversity is don't give up. If you don't give up, you might you might still not make it. You probably won't. You might not achieve what you want to achieve. But if you do give up, you won't achieve it. Someone next to you is going to go, oh, excuse me. Thank you. My time. I want this more than you want it. You have to want it. That doesn't mean you have to be an asshole about it or a dick no. about it. But you have to be ten tenacious. You have to have tenacity which I'm so grateful to my mother for instilling in me, for sure. Now, as far as people who have mental issues, man, my heart goes out to you. I'm dealing with them with my family, with myself. I think so many families do, and if not every family. And it's just don't give up. Same thing, don't give up. Keep trying to find a way to make it better. And it's out there, whether it's medication and therapy, which I believe in both of them when you need them. And, uh, and uh, being present and being um, focused and being honest. That's one thing in my uh, AA groups we talk about all the time because we're a bunch of drunks and junkies. And the one thing that is that will trip us up is when we're dishonest with ourselves. When you're dishonest with the rest of the world constantly because you're lying and trying to scheme, it's really easy to buy into that shit yourself. And I just have found that if I'm honest and clean and I don't have this pyramid of lies and deceit and bullshit going on weighing me down, I feel free to be able to do what I want to do. And that's what we're here for, to be able to do what we want to do that will make us happy. And, in and isn't it isn't it so much easier to live a life where you haven't 
got to keep remembering what bullshit you put out there and what you told someone might not be the right thing you told someone else isn't it better just to get up and go i haven't got to worry about what i told that person because what i did was the truth (laughs) absolutely absolutely you don't have to explain yourself because you're not doing anything that makes you have to explain yourself you know and you're not taking offense at, at personal stuff and acting you know, I mean, exactly how you just said it, just that freedom. I wake up in the morning, if if my MS isn't kicking in uh, and I get up and go for a swim in the pool and I make coffee for my family and my, uh, breakfast and get my daughter ready for school, those are pure things. And then I go to work. I do interviews or I'm working on songs or I'm working on uh, writing something or working on ideas for my book. I try to spend an hour a day with, you know, like ideas and I'm getting ready to record it all and uh, and then have someone uh, edit it with me. And, you know, that that's the process right now I'm going through. And I just try to keep busy every day and be grateful for my blessings. And if I if I if I make mistakes, if I do things that aren't aren't right, I try to make amends for them every day. And um, I know it sounds like sounds like 12 step, right? I, I mean, once you get a part of that fellowship, there's everything is uh, everything is a, that's it's a part of everything and everything is a part of it. So I'm grateful I have that in my life and I'm grateful that I have cleanliness and I'm talking about inner like what you were talking about. Waking up, yeah. waking up clean, man. I'm not waking up someone else's bed. I'm waking up in my bed with my wife every day, even if I'm not here. I'm still waking up with her every day. She's in my life here and here, and I have no drama. Life without drama is just the best. Doesn't the back feel so much more comfortable with all that weight taken off and all that stress and strain not there and all the bullshit and lies? It's just like, ah, oh, it's exhausting. All that, fear, it's fear. It's all based on fear. Anger yeah. is based on fear. Um, you know, uh, revenge, uh, jealousy, it's all based on fear. And who the fuck needs that? We should do no. that. <laughs> and last time we did the first part of this interview, you were just about to go off the call and we decided that your outro music would be Led Zeppelin because we had talked about Whole Lot of Love all the way through in that opening riff. But now, and not many people get this, in 155 episodes, I've only had one guest that's had a two-part episode but you get a second choice now as an outro song. Now let's put you on the spot. It's not rushed. You haven't got to jump off this five minutes now, but what is a song that means hell of a lot to you? Not Led Zeppelin, something else that is a perfect outro song for you. A band that you adore, maybe just a song from a band you adore, but something that when this interview is all wrapped up, it's edited, it's all produced, it sounds great, and the outro music's about to be played, what is it that comes to your heart and your head first? Hmm. I'm thinking of all the songs that I I really love, and whether that they they match up to this. There's there's so much of it. Um, um, I don't know. That's a really good question. I mean, there's so much great music. I I I would have to, I would have to, uh, you know, in in lieu of uh, yesterday's news of uh, Charlie Watts passing. Yeah. And I played with the Stones. We played a couple of shows with the Stones, and he was always such so a gentleman with a sparkle in his eye and he's quiet, but he's not, he's not soft. You know what I mean? He wasn't soft. Yeah. He had a lot of heart and a lot of drive. And I heard it, some stories from people in meetings last night that knew him because I'm in, in meetings, um, AA meetings with a lot of people who are, you know, up there in the biz and uh, man, he was a badass. So I'd have to say, uh, Rolling Stones, you can't always get what you want. Amazing. Such a choice. It's a great song. Great album. Thank you, dude, for coming back and giving me your time. It's priceless. I never take it for granted. I work very hard, and I know that people out there aren't always so willing to give time, but you've come back for more. It didn't feel right ending on part one. It wasn't finished, and now I feel like it's complete, so I really do appreciate you coming back, dude. It was, it was lovely talking to you as always and uh man just uh thank you for having me on and we're, we are planning on we're, we're trying to put together a with agents over in the uk a uk tour next year with a bunch of alternative 90s alternative bands so hopefully 
we can pull that together and we'll see you that will be incredible so there it is there's the second part of my interview with art alexis from everclear an amazing real honest and open guy that's not afraid to say how it is and i absolutely love his interview both parts and i'm so grateful that he came back so we could do the second part because i felt the first part was quite rushed at the end but my god to have these two parts now as one for me feels complete i absolutely love everclear and my respect for art has always been high but to get and talk in so much depth about the music and all about what's made him the person he is today god my respect has gone through the roof i hope everyone that's tuned in today has really enjoyed the interview as much as me it's been a long time coming and i'm really grateful for you all listening now if you've really enjoyed today's episode what i ask is you share it across your social media channels it costs absolutely nothing to do and all the links are on markandme.com on facebook you can share it by literally hitting that share button and all your friends on your network will see it on instagram you could share it as a story or just put it on your own post, but please, it goes a long way. And Twitter is the easiest. Just hit that retweet button. It brings a whole new audience to the podcast and really is something that I can't put money on. It's that important and that crucial. So thanks for everyone that takes the time to share these episodes. And if you've really loved today's episode, I do have a Patreon page. On there every month, thanks to my amazing friends at Vice Press and the amazing last exit to nowhere i have some amazing posters some awesome t-shirts to give away and that's my way of saying thank you for supporting the podcast i can't do it without the love and support from you patrons so if you really want to support the podcast jump on mark and me there's a link on there and it means so so much things aren't slowing down anytime soon and for me september and october have been my busiest but my most successful months and it isn't slowing down My next interview is absolutely huge and will only be a few days away. So until then, look after yourself, please take care, and I'll speak to you all very soon.
Glenn. 